welcome to this edition of America's Godly Heritage. Do you recognize the Liberty Bell, an icon of freedom? One of its most distinctive features is its crack. The crack distorts the sound of the bell and weakens its structure. If you were to continue to toll a cracked bell, it would shatter. This makes the bell unusable, so normally a cracked bell would be removed and melted down. So how did this cracked and useless bell come to have such a hold on American culture? In this edition, we're going to discuss the State House Bell, because that's what the Liberty Bell was called for its first hundred or so years of its existence. We will look at how the bell was created, and this is ridiculous enough that it should have been featured in an episode of The Amazing World of Gumball, how the bell was used, and how it became cracked. The story of the Liberty Bell begins in 1681, when King Charles II of England gave William Penn a charter to a land grant of approximately 45,000 square miles or nearly all of what is now known as Pennsylvania. He also gave Penn free, full, and absolute power to ordain, make, and enact any laws whatsoever, and to appoint and establish any judges and justices, magistrates and officers whatsoever on the land granted to him. Now that's pretty special. That's almost ultimate power. Soon afterwards, Penn issued the Frame for Government for Pennsylvania, which included the right to freedom of conscience to all who believed in God. This was then updated and improved upon in the 1701 Charter of Privileges. In the Charter, Penn created a colonial government with a unicameral, or one-house, legislature comprised of annually elected assemblymen wherein the colonists could make their own laws and this was among the most powerful governments in the original 13 colonies. Although the legislature was powerful and independent, it was pretty low-key, and they usually met in taverns or homes until 1729, when members decided to build an official state house. The resulting Pennsylvania State House became Colonial America's most beautiful and imposing public building. Then they thought, hmm... We need a way to be able to call the Philadelphians, and not just the Philadelphians, but everybody in the whole area, if we need them to come to the State House for important events. So we need a big, loud bell. So in November 1749, the Assembly ordered the creation of a steeple with a suitable place thereon for hanging a bell. Isaac Norris, the Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly, who was also a Quaker, wanted the bell to have a Bible inscription on it, one that would reflect the colonists' desire for freedom. Such freedom was outlined in Penn's charter, which protected personal and religious freedom, Native American rights, and the rights of free male citizens to be part of the political process. Norris then proposed Leviticus 25.10, which in the King James Version says, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all of the inhabitants thereof. On November 1st, 1751, Norris, along with Thomas Leach and Edward Warner, 
wrote to the Assembly's London agent, Robert Charles, asking him to procure a good bell of about 2,000 pounds weight. He went on to say, let the bell be cast by the best workman and examined carefully before it is shipped with the following words well-shaped in large letters around it, viz, by order of the Assembly of the Province of Pennsylvania for the State House in the City of Philadelphia, 1752, and underneath, proclaim liberty through all the land to all the inhabitants thereof, Leviticus 25.10. Now, Please note, I didn't misspeak. His letter actually did say Povins. That was just a little mistake. But it also spelled Pennsylvania with only two N's instead of three like we spell it today. This was actually a common way of spelling it back then. And in fact, the original U.S. Constitution spells it this way with just the two N's. All right, back to our story. In May 1752, Charles sent a receipt from the Whitechapel Bell Foundry for 150 pounds for the cost of the bell, shipping, and insurance. On a side note, this is the same company that later made the famous Big Ben Bell, which hangs in the Palace of Westminster in London. Ironically, Big Ben cracked as well. All right, back to the story again. On September 1st, 1752, Norris wrote to Charles that the bell is come ashore and in good order, though we have not yet tried the sound. Things were good for a while, and then another Norris letter on March 10, 1753 begins the drama surrounding the bell. The bell was mounted on a stand so they could test the sound, and at the first strike of the clapper, the bell's rim cracked. The first strike! They tried to return the bell, but the master of the vessel that had brought it was unable to take it on board. I had the mortification to hear that it, the bell, was cracked by a stroke of the clapper without any other violence as it was hung up to try the sound. Two ingenious workmen undertook to cast it here, and I am just now informed that they have this day opened the mold and have got a good bell. When we broke up the metal of the Whitechapel bell, our judges have generally agreed it was too high and brittle. The two ingenious workmen were two Philadelphia foundry workers named John Pass and John Stowe, who offered to melt down and recast the bell. They added an ounce and a half of copper for each pound of the old bell in an attempt to make the new bell less brittle. The bell was all ready to go a few weeks later, and Norris reported that the lettering, which now magically included Passenstow's names, was clearer on the new bell than on the old. City officials scheduled a public celebration for the testing of the recast bell. The good news is, when the bell was struck, it didn't break. But the bad news is, the bell sounded terrible. In fact, it was so bad, the crowd began to mock Pass and Stowe, and they quickly gathered up the bell to work on it again and recast it. Once it was all done, the bell was tested again, and this time it passed the test. On June 11, 1753, the New York Mercury reported, Last week was raised and fixed in the State House steeple the new great bell, 
cast here by Pass and Stowe, weighing 2,080 pounds. It wasn't long before the bell was known as the State House Bell. Well, gee, that's a real shock, isn't it? The bell that's located in the State House is called the State House Bell. Even though the bell had been made three times, it was still faulty and would eventually develop its famous crack. So what was wrong with this bell? In 1975, the Winter Thur Museum analyzed the metal in the bell and found that it had a considerably higher level of tin than other contemporary bells made by the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. So the museum hypothesized that the foundry had made a mistake when they made the bell. Then, to make matters worse, when Pass and Stowe recast the bell, they added cheap pewter, which had a high lead content. They also didn't mix the new metal properly into the mold. The result was an extremely brittle alloy. In any case, Norris didn't like the sound the bell made. So in November 1753, he wrote to Robert Charles that he was still unhappy with the bell and requested that the Whitechapel foundry cast a new one. Now why in the world would he ask the same company to make another bell? He was unhappy with the first bell they sent, so why would he think that the second bell would be any better? I don't know, but he asked for another bell. When the new bell arrived, surprise, surprise, it didn't sound any better than the original bell. So the State House bell remained where it was. Whether Philadelphians liked the sound or not, the State House bell was rung to call the assembly together and to summon residents for special announcements and events, such as when Benjamin Franklin was sent to England to address colonial grievances, when King George II died and King George III ascended to the throne, when residents needed to discuss the Townshend Acts, and when the First Continental Congress came together and met in Philadelphia. In addition to these political tollings, beginning in the early 1760s, the bell was also used for religious tollings when the assembly permitted nearby St. Paul's Church to use the State House bell to announce worship until their church building was completed a few years later. In fact, the bell rang so many times that in 1772, residents who lived near the State House sent the assembly a petition stating they were incommoded and distressed by the constant ringing of the great bell in the steeple. In October 1774, the assembly became concerned about the poor condition of the steeple. After all, if something broke or collapsed, a 2,000-plus pound bell is going to come crashing down on them. So they ordered the wooden part to be torn down. But this didn't happen for several years thanks to the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. This safety issue may mean that the State House bell did not ring to announce the great events that took place in the next year and a half. Further, contrary to a popular legend which will be discussed in the second episode about the Liberty Bell, on July 4, 1776, the State House bell did not ring to celebrate the Declaration of Independence. In fact, none of the city's bells rang. 
The Second Continental Congress had met in a closed session, so the general public didn't know about the Declaration until it was read in the yard behind the State House on July 8th. Then the city's bells rang for the rest of the day. I wonder how that commotion incommoded and distressed the nearby residents. Since this was such a momentous occasion, the State House bell probably did ring with the other city bells. They rang again on July 4, 1777, to celebrate the nation's first birthday. However, they were silenced in September. The British Army was threatening to invade Philadelphia, so the city began to remove anything that the army could use. Since bells could be melted down and recast into cannon, they had to go. Colonel Benjamin Flower was ordered to take down the bells of all the public buildings in the city and convey them to safety. So the army commandeered several farmers' wagons and they placed the bells, including the State House bell, in the wagons, covered them with straw, and spirited them out of the city. It is most likely that Frederick Leeser owned the wagon bearing the State House bell and that he carted it to Allentown, Pennsylvania. The bell was then hidden in the cellar of the Zion Reformed Church of Allentown. You can still visit the church and its Liberty Bell Museum today. These were wise precautions because the British occupied Philadelphia just two weeks later. When the British evacuated the city in June 1778, the bells returned. However, since the State House steeple was in such poor condition, the bell was put in storage. The steeple was torn down in 1781, a new bell tower was built, and the bell was finally rehung in 1785. Throughout the next few decades, the bell tolled again. It tolled to call the state legislature into session, to mark the signing of the U.S. Constitution, to celebrate the 4th of July, to mark the deaths of prominent leaders such as George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, to call voters on Election Day, and to alert students to get to class at the nearby University of Pennsylvania Philosophical Hall. Sounds like it was driving the neighbors crazy again. In 1799, the state capitol moved to Lancaster, leaving the state house vacant except for court sessions. Philadelphia ended up buying the building from the state in a process that took from 1816 to 1818, and they began preservation efforts. In fact, it was the nation's first historic preservation movement. They saved the building, and they started restoring the interior and the exterior to get it back to its former glory. It's the first time in our country's history that that type of a preservation effort happened. However, because they had a, a new steeple that was really strong and secure, and they wanted a new bell, probably one that sounded better, a new 4,000-pound bell was cast, and it became the new State House Bell. The old State House Bell was kept in the State House Tower, but it was used from time to time. No one knows for certain how the bell became cracked. It is mentioned in newspaper articles on March 5th and September 3rd, 1824, 
in city council discussions between February 7th and December 27th, 1828, in articles in the Saturday Evening Post and the Casket in 1829, in a city council agreement to let the old state house bell ring on July 4th, 1831, in an 1837 guidebook, in news reports that stated the old bell was tolled when President William Henry Harrison died on April 7, 1841, and in a story about the bell published by Philadelphia's newspaper, The Public Ledger, on February 29, 1844. However, none, none of these media accounts mention a crack. Hmm. Our best clues as to when the bell was originally cracked are contained in two more articles of the public ledger. In 1848, an article mentioned in passing that the bell had cracked in the autumn of 1845. At this point in time, hairline cracks on the bell were stop drilled so they wouldn't continue to spread. Like a dentist filling a cavity in your tooth, the cracks were drilled, smoothed out, and filled. However, this attempt to fix the bell didn't last long. The crack reappeared and spread. In fact, it was so bad, the bell became unringable on February 23, 1846. The public ledger reported on February 26, 1846, that this venerable relic of the Revolution rang its last clear note on Monday last. In honor of the birthday of Washington, and now hangs in the great city steeple, irreparably cracked and forever dumb. It had been cracked long before, but was set in order for that day. It gave out clear notes and loud, and appeared to be in excellent condition until noon, when it received a sort of compound fracture in a zigzag direction through one of its sides, which put it completely out of tune and left it a mere wreck of what it was. At this point, the city of Philadelphia had a ruined bell to deal with. Normally, a broken bell would have been melted down and recast into something else. Yet the old state house bell had another destiny. In the next episode, we will look at how the bell came to be linked with the concept of liberty and became the Liberty Bell, how it helped unite the nation after the Civil War, and how it is now viewed as a symbol of freedom in the United States and throughout the world. Thank you for listening to this edition of America's Godly Heritage. I hope you have a great day. Bye! If you would like to help support America's Godly Heritage or to view the resources used to make this podcast, just go to patreon.com or vimeo.com and type America's Godly Heritage in the search box. You can also make financial donations at givesendgo.com. Again, just type America's Godly Heritage in the search box. We really appreciate your support. Thanks again. Bye.